0: Welcome to the Valeocon Commercial Excellence in Pharma podcast series. Our guest today is Jeff Schnack, and our topic is pharmaceutical marketing in Japan. Welcome to the podcast, Jeff. Thank you. If you don't mind, please introduce yourself to our listeners.
1: Great. So I am a U.S. native and have been living in Japan for about 23 years. I started in other industries, and so I've only been in the pharma world for about 12 years, but have a pretty good understanding of the Japanese market, I think. Although it's still a riddle for me. And actually, I was speaking to some people last night, some Japanese people who said, you know, I've lived here for 52 years, 52-year-old gentleman who said it's still a riddle for me as well. So there are still some things to learn.
0: Excellent. So many Western pharma executives see the Japan market as a black box. You've been working there for many years. How would you describe the pharma commercial model in Japan?
1: Well, I think the easiest way to describe that is to think about the U.S. market perhaps a decade ago, where it was still very much a share of voice market with a lot of reps in the field speaking directly to prescribers and using relationship-based selling to try to move large primary care products. Of course, with the product portfolios moving into specialty care and oncology and immunology and so forth, the product characteristics have changed significantly, but the commercial model itself in Japan is still a little bit stuck in that relationship-based selling model. And we're talking today about multi-channel. I think that's one of the key challenges for the pharma companies here is to try to move more quickly out of that share of voice model, which they have developed so strongly here in Japan.
0: And I understand there also have been recently some major regulatory changes. So what are those and how do they impact the industry?
1: Well, the most important ones are the Japan government's move toward what they're terming community health care. So they are trying to force decision-making and responsibility for health care provision into the local governments. And what that means is that the local governments, if they're overloaded on acute care facilities in their region, for instance, They're trying to get the local governments to rationalize the number of beds for acute care versus chronic care to set up networks of care between home care and hospital care and general practitioners and so forth. And they're backing that up with the differences in the reimbursement fee schedules and so forth for prescribers and trying to force the actions upon the medical providers in the areas. So the first one is the reimbursement fee schedules for fee for service. All of the point systems are changing for the healthcare professionals. And the other thing is that the federal government or the the national government has provided some extra budgets so that the local authorities can actually start to adjust their own fee schedules in the regions. This is actually not yet decided, but they're working on that now so that you will no longer have a national fee schedule or you will have a national fee schedule, but you will be able to see differences in the localities about how they reimburse physicians for certain fee for service. So, those are all things that are changing the framework of how the pharma players have to look at access and look at the regulations, not just on a national level, but on regional and local levels as well.
0: So, could that mean, for example, for a biopharma player that they need to be concerned about market access in specific local geographies?
1: Exactly. That's coming. So that isn't yet here, but we've been telling our clients that if they don't have a three to five year formulary strategy to remain on formulary in all of those local markets, there's a very good chance that they can get shut out of access on a prefecture by prefecture basis here in Japan.
0: So how does that impact commercial model? Does that mean that more resources go towards market access, health economics and outcomes research type efforts? Well, that's
1: what will come at the second stage. Companies are thinking about how to do that now, but there's really no good solution or no good models in the market yet. The first step they're taking is to try to involve their frontline sales managers and their sales teams in participating somehow in that community healthcare move. So the regulations as far as the provision of information from the medical reps has gotten tighter. Medical representatives are very, very restricted now in the types of conversations that they can have with prescribers. So they're trying to retain a share of voice, relationship-based selling model, but the reps can only speak on very distinct on-label topics. That's difficult. So the first effort by the pharma companies is to try to extend that conversation at the rep level and the frontline sales manager level so that they can talk more holistically with the physicians about what's going on in community health care and how their product fits into the solution, into the region. That's the first thing. And then the second thing, as you mentioned, would be how to start to generate local data in those municipalities, in those regions, to try to justify two, three years out, staying on formulary or staying in the regulatory framework's good graces in each of those localities.
0: What's the driver behind all of this? Is it similar to like Western countries? Is it the cost pressures or what's behind this?
1: Yeah, basically it's the cost pressures. Everybody's aware that Japan is the first country that's really going into the super-aging demographic category. And so the government has noted that in 2025, that super-aging onset the you know, baby boomer generation will all be 70 years old, and that's going to be driving cost of care, especially in the aging population significantly. So there's two things that the, the government officials that I speak with talk about. First thing is definitely the cost. The second thing is because of the declining birth rate in population in the younger generations that has been going on over the last 20 years or so, they're really concerned that they won't have enough healthcare workers to actually take care of the elder generation as they go into more severe conditions and and require more hands-on care. And so it's not just the cost, they talk about actually the need for more healthcare workers to do home care and to facilitate that community healthcare model. And that's in Japan going to be, one of their expectations is that that will be solved in part by robotics and health IT around those areas.
0: Very interesting. So one other topic that is common around the world is really multi-channel marketing. Everybody talks about it. It's a hot topic. To what extent is that topic of conversation in the Japanese market?
1: It's definitely top of mind. As I've said, the SOB model is starting to fail. The relationship-based selling is starting to fail. There are 40% of the facilities are either no-call facilities or only appointment-based facilities. Now, so again, you can't just go in with the same nice smile and relationship to move the product. In that sense, then people have started to think about multi-channel marketing, and the Japanese are very tech-savvy. Obviously, physicians and healthcare providers use a lot of tools and digital channels in their work and their personal lives, but really become so used to the heavy sales forces and the large sales forces that it's a real challenge for the pharma companies now to try to switch them into other channels and try to pull off some of the headcount that they have in the sales forces right now.
0: So that probably also talks to some of the topics around how quickly can you adjust to this new environment, right? What do you see some of the specific challenges people face in that regard?
1: First of all, in Japan, there's one very, very large player people might be aware of, the company called M3, who has basically done a very nice job getting in the market early and establishing themselves as the digital channel for communication to prescribers. So when you see statistics about what percentage of physicians in Japan, for instance, do use digital channels for access to online webinars or for on-demand details and so forth, There's a pretty high number. The problem that the pharma companies have is that there's basically one default channel, which is M3, and every pharma company is on that channel and trying to differentiate in some way on that third-party channel. And so it's very difficult for them to get real traction. It's almost like you have a share of voice battle going on within M3 on one side. And then you have another battle in the field with the reps on the other side. And there's not a plethora of other options for the pharma companies to use.
0: Do you see that changing anytime soon? Do you see that there's other companies getting into the position between, you know, the pharma company and physicians?
1: Yes, and you've started to see that just in the last two years, where you have some significant investment moving into the venture space as well. Five years ago, it was very, very farce. There were some startups, but they weren't believable enough. They weren't strong enough with their market solutions. And so now you're starting to see those companies pop up, especially around remote detailing, where... There are companies that are offering, for instance, details during the evening so that you can get the physicians at home, appointment-based, remote detailing, things like that. And a lot of build-up also in the medical affairs function so that for off-label discussions or for other questions that the prescribers have, they can really get to a specialist quickly through some sort of an online platform. But I would say in Japan, the ecosystem for digital companies is still not very strong. And also, I would say that the pharma companies have not done a very good job of assisting and supporting that ecosystem to build up enough ventures so that they have good options for their multi-channel marketing.
0: So with regards to the challenges that companies that operate in Japan face, do you see differences between pharma companies that are headquartered in Japan? and Japanese affiliates of Western companies in terms of how they approach these topics?
1: Well, I think the main difference there, obviously the market situation is the same. The foreign pharma companies have great experience in Europe and the United States with multi-channel already. So they're able to leverage that experience, not specifically the vendor platforms and so forth, but they're able to bring that knowledge and the experience to the market. And also, quite frankly, the global teams and the global management has forced or is trying to force the Japanese affiliates of those foreign companies to move faster. So they're saying, we don't understand why you would need 2,000 reps in the field. And there is head office pressure to move those foreign capital companies along faster. On the other side, the Japanese companies, they obviously are looking at the same market situation. They understand that, but perhaps they don't have the strong experience overseas that they can leverage. So they are really struggling to understand the model and to try to make it their own.
0: Very interesting. And what specific challenges do you see For foreign executives that go to Japan, for example, to oversee the Japanese affiliate, to what extent have you seen people be successful in understanding how the market works and how the organization functions?
1: Yes, that's a key question. And the executives that come here and are successful, if you ask them, most of them will say the key is to really understand in their own mind at the outset that they will never understand everything that's going on in the market that there will be these small black boxes and They need to come to terms with that because if they try to drive down into all the detail and really understand things, you can really get dragged down into a lot of rabbit holes and so forth. So to try to really create your vision, understand why you're doing what you're doing and convey that convincingly to your staff, that's the key thing to be very strategic with the teams and to try to understand that you will just not understand everything here. Try to make clear to the people that, They need to come to you and explain things well in order to get your support and so forth. But the best way to sort of alleviate those concerns about black boxes and things that you aren't understanding is to really get a broad scope of advisors to you. The pharma executives here that I see that are very unsuccessful typically surround themselves with a clique of three or four very, very good English speakers. And the executives that they gather around them, they gather basically because it's easy to communicate with them. And you have to really understand that the communication is going to be a challenge, that the Japanese are not hiding things willfully from you. It's just very difficult for them sometimes to convey what they're thinking and the reasons behind that. So to try to really force a lot of members of your organization to encourage them to come to you, to force them to really speak out and try to get as broad a level of input as you can so that you're not relying on too few people in the executive suite.
0: Excellent. Well, very insightful, Jeff. Thank you so much for taking the time today to talk to us. That was our conversation with Jeff Schneck from 3Rock Consulting about the commercial pharma market in Japan. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you.